Greetings, you're listening to podcast number 109 of Blast the Right. I'm your host, Jack Clark. Great to have you here. Today, we'll revisit the troubling issue of the right wing's continuing obsession with torturing people. And, in a departure from the usual, the second segment will be about me. You'll learn what Jack Clark's real name is. Huh? Stay tuned. Let's get right into it. My sources for this segment are the Sunday Times of London, the 1948 United Nations War Crimes Commission, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Harper's Magazine, and Human Rights Watch. Several months ago, I showed you how the Bush administration's beloved enhanced interrogation techniques are actually repackaged Soviet Union interrogation techniques. In recent days, the leading Republican presidential candidates with the exception of John McCain, have been trying to outdo each other in bragging to what degree they would abuse prisoners they believe are terrorists. In other words, how far their own administration's enhanced interrogation techniques will go. So it's time to take a look at this issue again. And what a bombshell piece of new information you're about to hear. First, a recap of the Soviet Union connection. During the Cold War, the United States conducted surveillance flights over the Soviet Union, and we had plenty of spies on the ground there. We wanted to make sure that the airmen and others at great risk of being caught by the Soviets were prepared for the brutal interrogations they'd be forced to endure. So, the military set up a training program for our airmen and spies called Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, or SEER. What SEER did was inflict upon the aviators and others the very types of interrogation methods the Soviets would use on them, such as sleep deprivation, extreme heat and cold, painful stress positions, and waterboarding. Now, skip forward to the year 2002. The CIA and Pentagon decide that the standard questioning techniques they're using which were, of course, adequate during the Cold War for our questioning of Soviet spies, adequate during World War II for questioning prisoners from Nazi Germany and Tojo's Japan. These standard interrogation techniques are somehow now not adequate for suspected terrorists in Bush's War on Terror. What had worked for decades in facing down Hitler and Imperial Japan and the Soviet Union had to be improved upon, so said the Bushians. And what did they do? A recently declassified report by the Defense Department's own Inspector General tells you the Bushians reverse-engineered the Soviet techniques for use by, by, American interrogators. Was it an old Pogo cartoon where it said, We have met the enemy and he is us? Now the Bushians had a little problem with this because torture is against U.S. law and against international law that the U.S. is subject to as well. In order to get around the many legal prohibitions against torture that Americans are bound by, the Bush administration simply claimed these Soviet torture techniques weren't torture. Presto! Magic! Not torture anymore! They were instead, the right-wingers claimed, merely coerced interrogation. 
Even that term sounded too harsh, I guess, so it was changed to enhanced interrogation. Waterboarding, excruciatingly painful stress positions, extreme heat and cold, all were now okay for Americans to inflict upon their prisoners because they weren't torture, just enhanced interrogation. How could anyone argue with enhancing the interrogation of a terrorist? Could this scenario be any worse? Definitely. You've got right-wingers involved, so you know there's always something worse to uncover. If there's one 20th century government that is universally abhorred around the world, it's the Nazi regime of Adolf Hitler. One of the most feared elements during the Nazi reign of terror was the Gestapo, Hitler's secret police. They were the ones who rounded up those deemed enemies of Hitler and threw them in concentration camps. Turns out there's a term the Gestapo used to describe its interrogation methods. Pardon my German, the term is Verschärfte Vernemung. What does that mean? Yes, your worst fears are true. Verschärfte Vernemung translates to enhanced interrogation techniques. And, yes again, the Gestapo's techniques included such Bush administration favorites as hypothermia, stress positions, and prolonged sleep deprivation. So not only do the right-wing's enhanced interrogation techniques have a Soviet pedigree, they go one further and have a Nazi pedigree as well. And not only that, just like the Soviets tried, and the Bush administration still tries, to hide behind absurd, legally dubious arguments to excuse their torturing of prisoners, so did Nazis employ similar defenses when those Nazis faced war crimes prosecutions after World War II. In 1948 in Norway, a Nazi gentleman named Richard Wilhelm Hermann Bruns was charged, along with others, with torturing members of the Norwegian resistance who had fought the Nazi occupation. Resistance fighters, part of an insurgency, battling against a foreign occupation, being tortured. Where have you seen this recently? In an attempt to defend themselves, the Nazis in 1948 made two arguments. These arguments are favorites of your present-day right-wingers when you accuse them of torturing people. Boy, wouldn't you love to see all these right-wingers? See Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Powell, Rice, Wolfowitz, the entire gang. Wouldn't you like to see them have to offer their lame excuses at a war crimes trial at The Hague, not just on Meet the Press? Anyway, one of the arguments the Nazi defendants made, according to the court's summary of them, was that, quote, the acts of torture which the defendants had committed were permitted under international law as reprisals against the illegal military organization whose activities were at variance with international law. Close quote. Doesn't this send chills up your spine? An illegal military organization? Shades of the Bushian term illegal or unlawful enemy combatant. International law prohibitions against torture therefore didn't apply, the Nazis argued. How many present-day right-wingers have you heard make this very argument? The terrorists are illegal enemy combatants, thus they don't have any protections. A second line of defense offered by the Nazi defendants was that, quote, the acts of torture in no case resulted in death, 
Most of the injuries inflicted were slight and did not result in permanent disablement. Close quote. If you listen to right-wing talk radio or cable, you know that this is exactly what the right-wing hosts and their experts claim, that our enhanced interrogation techniques don't kill anyone or result in any permanent injuries, so they're not torture. And of course, please do recall the infamous torture memo prepared by Bush lawyers, which sought to formally redefine torture as only that level of pain, quote, associated with death, organ failure, or serious impairment of bodily functions, close quote. The torture memo was withdrawn under fire, but its spirit and ideas live on in the right-wing pro-torture world. So how did our Nazi defendants fare after making these Bushian-type defenses? They received the death sentence. On appeal, the court said that baseline protections against being tortured applied regardless of whether a prisoner was in uniform or out of uniform. And, the court found, the Nazis, quote, had inflicted serious physical and mental suffering on their victims, close quote. A lack of being tortured to death or losing an actual limb didn't mean a war crime wasn't committed. The death sentence for the Nazis was affirmed. Up next, more on your present-day right wing's embrace of torture. Your one-minute voting report. Our ratings in iTunes is holding steady, but we need more five-star reviews because right-wingers are still sending in those one-star sabotage reviews. Here's the latest one. It's funny how lefties always claim to have the facts and tell the truth, and all of you lemmings drop in line. Fools. Well, we're not fools. Let's show them with a ton of five-star reviews. Over at Podcast Alley, if you voted in October, thanks, we finished at number 8. Unlike iTunes, which is one time only, Podcast Alley begins a voting anew at the beginning of each month. So please, go over there and vote for Blast the Right. There's a one-click link on my podcast homepage to do so. Thanks. Given this Soviet and Nazi pedigree for the Bush administration's enhanced interrogation techniques, our present-day right-wing torture mongers are put in a light, if possible, even worse than before. Rudy Giuliani recently mocked the pain and suffering that prolonged sleep deprivation can cause. Quote, In his remarks in Iowa, Mr. Giuliani also criticized Democrats who call sleep deprivation torture. They talk about sleep deprivation, he said. I mean, on that theory, I'm getting tortured running for President of the United States. That's plain silly. That's silly. Close quote. Bill O'Reilly has poo-pooed the seriousness of waterboarding. He opined, quote, You have powerful forces in America who are basically saying they don't care if it saves lives. We would rather have more Americans die, have more terror attacks on our home soil, than dunk these people in water. Close quote. Dunk these people in water. In waterboarding, a prisoner is bound to an inclined board, feet raised, and head below his feet, bound and gagged, 
He has water poured over him to make him think he's about to drown. Nice try to sugarcoat a brutal torture procedure, Bill. Have you ever gone swimming and tried to dive real deep? And then on the way up, you realize you miscalculated, and it'll be a bit more time than you planned before you'll break the surface and be able to take in some oxygen. A pretty panicky feeling, isn't it? And if you really miscalculated, it becomes awfully painful as you desperately need to breathe and can't. And if you start breathing in and swallowing water, the pain of that is unbearable and the mental anguish horrific. So inducing the feeling of drowning would have to be considered torture by any rational person. And, Bill O'Reilly, you're in fine company. Waterboarding as a torture technique dates back to the Inquisition. How fitting that the brutality inflicted upon others by religious extremists 500 years ago, our current day religious extremists are once again employing. After World War II, the U.S. successfully prosecuted as war criminals Japanese soldiers who waterboarded American prisoners. The Khmer Rouge used waterboarding. Waterboarding is so clearly torture that the U.S. military has long forbidden its use. Back during the Spanish-American War in the early 1900s, a major in the U.S. Army was convicted of waterboarding an insurgent and sentenced to 10 years of hard labor. In Vietnam, U.S. generals declared it an illegal practice when the Washington Post ran a photograph of a U.S. soldier participating in the waterboarding of a North Vietnamese prisoner, that soldier was harshly punished. And the present-day Army Manual explicitly forbids waterboarding. With all this in mind, it's especially appalling that Bush's nominee for Attorney General, Michael Mukasey, would not agree that waterboarding is torture. He said he didn't know enough about the technique. Bull. Listen to this from the New York Times account of Mukasey's confirmation hearings. Quote, Is waterboarding constitutional? Mr. Mukasey was asked by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island. I don't know what is involved in the technique, Mr. Mukasey replied. If waterboarding is torture, torture is not constitutional. Close quote. Later, Senator Whitehouse explained to Mukasey that waterboarding was, quote, the practice of putting somebody in a reclining position, strapping them down, putting cloth over their faces, and pouring water over the cloth to simulate the feeling of drowning. Is that constitutional? Mr. Mukasey again demurred, saying, if it amounts to torture, it is not constitutional. Mr. Whitehouse said he was very disappointed in that answer. I think it is purely semantic. Mr. Mukasey replied, I'm sorry, close quote. I'm sorry, too, that an abomination like Michael Mukasey could seriously be considered fit to serve as the Attorney General of the United States. Let's not even get into, right now at least, Mukasey's belief that if a president unilaterally determines that a law is unconstitutional, he should feel free to violate it. To close, please allow me to suggest that when you next have the pleasure of conversing with your friendly local right-winger, you pose to them one or more of the following series of questions. First, does it not make you, Mr. or Ms. Right-Winger, a bit uncomfortable that your beloved enhanced interrogation techniques have a pedigree consisting of the Inquisition, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, and Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge? Is that the company you want to keep? I certainly don't want them in my house. Another approach to your rightist acquaintance could be, 
doesn't your position mean that these enhanced interrogation techniques would be acceptable for use on U.S. soldiers or certainly on non-uniformed CIA agents and the like who may be captured by a foreign government? If not, why not? What's the distinction? And third, my right-wing torturemeister friend, if you yourself were on a trip abroad and were falsely informed upon as a terrorist and that country's government imprisoned you and subjected you to enhanced interrogation techniques, would that be okay as well? If not, again, what's the distinction? Houston, we have a problem. America, we have a problem. My progressive friend, my moderate listener, even my thinking clearly conservative visitor, please pitch in and solve this problem. You can start by calling 202-224-3121, the Capitol Hill switchboard, and demand that your two senators vote no on torture by voting no on Mukasey's nomination. I got this in an email and thought you'd enjoy it. This one-minute clip is entitled, What If the Military Advertised with Disclaimers? Under the most grueling conditions, they are shaped, hardened, sharpened, to stand among the most elite of all warriors, the few, the proud, the Marines. The military isn't right for everyone including men or women who are nursing or pregnant or who may become pregnant, and those with a commonly diagnosed reaction to death for the benefit of corporate fat cats, politicians, and interest groups. Serving in the military may cause sudden and serious side effects, such as bullet penetration syndrome, traumatic brain injury, loss of one or more limbs, and a public death on Al Jazeera. Many members of the military have experienced involuntarily extended tours of duty, chronically inadequate body armor, and an acute and persistent lack of an exit strategy. Typically, these symptoms last from two to six years, but may occur indefinitely. Tell your recruiter if you have a condition which limits your ability to carry out senseless orders from corrupt politicians who never saw combat themselves. Or if you are not easily swayed by patronizing platitudes such as We're defeating the enemy there so we won't have to fight him here. These may be signs of a serious problem called rational thought, which may require rehabilitation with large doses of Fox News. Don't let another day go by without dying for the right-wing agenda. Talk to your recruiter today. This is actually a video clip you just heard the audio of. It's from alternate.org, and I put the direct link to it on my data resources page. Impeach Cheney first. It can still get worse. After bushes and cups, it's liable to get rough. Impeach Cheney first. 
and Pete Cheney first. Knock him off his perch. He's the orchestrator, the real Darth Vader. He's the one with a purse. Get the wizard behind the curtain. Variety shotgun. If you suspected, from my accent perhaps, that Jack Clark wasn't my real name, my legal name, my original name, well, you're correct. My real name is Gerald Block, J-E-R-O-L-D-B-L-O-C-K. Actually, when my father's side of the family came over, so the story goes, the immigration officer on Ellis Island shortened a long Russian name to Block. Anyway, why have I used the name Jack Clark for the podcast? It was a pen name to keep me anonymous while that made sense. Let me tell you why I took this course of action. Back in the late 1980s, I was organizing nonviolent civil disobediences in the Southern California area. These were in opposition to Ronald Reagan's policy of aiding the Contra terrorists in Nicaragua. In order to raise funds, we set up a table at Venice Beach every weekend on the crowded promenade there. Each week, we'd collect a couple hundred dollars in donations. For a local group, that was darn good money, plenty to pay for our expenses. Well, not long after we started doing this, a group of local right-wingers took notice. Some of them were former left-wingers, and those converts are the craziest and most belligerent. We always took the same spot on the beach. One day when we arrived, there was a nice red hammer and sickle painted at our spot on the promenade. That didn't really bother me much. But... Back then I lived in an apartment which opened out onto the sidewalk about a half a mile away. My address was unlisted. So when one day I walked outside and saw the same red hammer and sickle painted on the sidewalk outside my apartment, that did cause me great concern. The right-wingers had obviously followed me home from the beach. There was no other way they could have found out where I lived. And to make matters worse, during that same time period, A young Salvadoran woman in Los Angeles had been abducted. She was doing activist work opposing Reagan's propping up of the Salvadoran dictatorship. She was tortured with cigarettes before being released. We all believed that the notorious Salvadoran death squads had started an operation in Los Angeles to squelch support here for the Salvadoran rebels. Well, the confluence of the marking of my apartment with a hammer and sickle and the abduction torture of this poor woman made me concerned about my own physical safety. What I did immediately was buy a couple of baseball bats and leave them strategically placed around my apartment. I tried to be extra aware of anyone who might follow me. I think I also bought some pepper spray. And, most relevant here, I also made a promise to myself. The next time I engage in any political activism against the right, Unless it was necessary for my effectiveness, I would keep my identity secret. No need to jeopardize my physical safety unnecessarily. My thinking was, if I was an unknown local activist having a limited effect in a given small area, that wasn't worth risking some local wignut harming me. If, 
On the other hand, I was able to gain national exposure, and it wouldn't be practical to conceal my identity, my thinking went. Okay, for national exposure and my advocacy having a wide-scale effect, that would be worth risking my physical safety for. So when I started the Blasterite podcast two years ago with zero listeners, I picked the name Jack Clark to use. No use exposing myself to wingnut violence for a zero-listener show. As my audience grew into the hundreds, I began to think, maybe I'm going to have to go with my real name at some point. Now that my subscriber base is over 3,000 and I'm truly gunning for national exposure and influence, I decided it was worth the risk to reveal who I was. So I agreed to let my college alumni magazine publish a short profile of me under Gerald Block, class of 1974. And since the cat is out of the bag, I wanted to directly tell you here as well. Those on the mailing list knew much of this a couple of weeks ago. If you'd like to get on the mailing list, just drop me a line, rational at roadrunner.com. Everyone has told me that the Alumni Magazine article is a great read. In fact, my college buddy, who I've known for over 35 years, told me there was stuff in there about me even he didn't know. The story of the hammer and sickle I told you earlier is, though, more complete and accurate than the version at the beginning of the profile. If you want to check the article out, you can find it most easily by googling Jack Clark Gerald Block, or the following Jack Clark Blast the Right Baseball Bat, and the article will be the first result. That's Jack Clark Blast the Right Baseball Bat if you don't remember how to spell Gerald the unusual way I spell it, J-E-R-O-L-D. When I told the Blast the Right email list about this, I asked if I should change to Gerald Block or keep Jack Clark. If you have an opinion, your input would be appreciated as well. While I'm on the subject of names, let me tell you about an additional wrinkle. All of my family calls me Gerald, as do most of my childhood friends from my neighborhood. But most of my childhood friends from summer camp, as well as most people I met as a high school senior and thereafter, when a certain friend with a very forceful personality convinced me Jerry was better to go with than Gerald, you know who you are, Norman. All these people call me Jerry. When my 95-year-old father, God bless him, used to call me and hear my answering machine answer as Jerry, it sometimes confused him for a second because he's known me as Gerald for 55 years. Well, actually, he, along with my mother, gave me the name Gerald, didn't they? I took the Jerry out of the greeting to save him the confusion. Jack, Gerald, Jerry? At least they all begin with a J. In any case... Please do check out the article by googling Jack Clark Gerald Block or Jack Clark Blast the Right Baseball Bat and let me know what you think. Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell many friends about Blast the Right and vote for Blast the Right at podcastalley.com and give Blast the Right a five-star review in the iTunes Music Store. A special shout-out to all you Live 365 listeners, as well as to all the listeners on KWMD in Kosilov and Anchorage, Alaska, WUTZ in Summertown, Tennessee, KNFS-LP in Tulare, California, the website nextgen570.com, globalpublicradio.org, and Grateful Dread Radio, gratefuldread.net. If you're listening on any of those stations or websites, you can vote at Podcast Alley as well. I received literally dozens of replies to my mailing list revelation about my real name and some of my background. 
I will respond to each of those. I'm just kind of behind given the numbers of them. Music credits. The break music was L.A. Nightmare by 22 Caliber and Not the One Blues by Bernshee Thornside. You heard as bumper music in Peach Cheney First by Bill Oliver and the Cheney Gang and Kill the Poor by Matthew Grimm and the Red Smear. We'll close on a lighter note with a little bit of Clinton is to Blamo by the Freedom Toast. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my music resources page. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Please keep all that great email coming in. My address is rational at roadrunner.com. You can also call in and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Just dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message. You can also leave a message on Skype. My Skype name is Jack from Blast the Right. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. (laughs) 